0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read this evening beginning with verse 1. And we'll read down to verse 14. Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. And coming out from the temple, Jesus was going along, and His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now as He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of Your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one deceives you. For many will come in My name saying, I am the Christ Christ. And will deceive many. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege it is to be together and to gather around your word. We ask your blessing upon this time of preaching, your gracious and powerful help both in the preacher and in the hearer. We pray that the result of this time in Your Word tonight would be the edification of Your saints, the fortification of our faith, the encouragement of our souls, the the deliverance of Your people from our temptations and struggles with sin, that, Lord, You would do Your good work in the hearts and lives of Your people by Your Spirit through the ministry of Your Word. As always, Lord, we're mindful that some will hear me who don't know You and we ask for salvation in these days that You would save, You would deliver, that You would put Your great name on display in rescued lives. We're mindful that our Savior could come for us at any moment. And so, Lord, also allow this time in Your Word to keep us awake and alert to the end. We ask for these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 3, now as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus has just told them in response to their being delighted over the temple complex, the buildings, he has just told them that the time is coming soon when the city of Jerusalem and that temple complex would be torn down the foundation. They connect in their minds that destruction of the temple with the ushering in of His rule, with the ushering in of His kingdom. They connect what He's talking about in verses 1 and 2 to the end of the age. Tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And what they have in mind is not the second coming as we now know it to be, but Rather, something that would represent His coming in power, coming into the place of rule is what they have in mind. And they expect it's going to happen in their lifetimes. In fact, even after the resurrection of Christ and just before the ascension of Christ, they are still asking about His kingdom with the expectation that something is to happen immediately. Look at Acts chapter 1 real quickly. And look at verse 6, Acts chapter 1. Actually, we could begin in verse 1. The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up to heaven, after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom He also presented Himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over forty days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. Is it at this time? So as we talked about this morning, they have these expectations that are in many ways confused. They still are struggling to grasp in their minds what Jesus is telling them. It's just not a part of the worldview and the set of expectations they had prior to His coming into the world. So sitting with them on the Mount of Olives, looking down upon the Temple Mount, Trying to make sense of what they're hearing, they ask two questions. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? A timing question and a recognition question. And Jesus speaks to both of those issues. But in doing so, what he does in the verses that follow is he actually sets forth an outline of future events. He takes us to The end of the age. He tells of a time leading up to the Great Tribulation, that's verses 4 through 14. Then he tells of the Great Tribulation, verses 14 through 26. And then he talks about what follows the Great Tribulation, namely his return in glory, verses 27 through 31. And as he talks about all of this, he gives signs for that Great Tribulation for the second coming. So he's going to answer, he's going to address at least the when question and the what question. But as I said, he begins in verses 4-14 through talking about the days leading up to the time of the Great Tribulation. Now, next week I plan to talk about Daniel's 70th week and talk about the seven year tribulation period. But as you may know, that seven years is divided in half by the Word of God. The first three and a half years, a time of great tribulation, but the last three and a half years, a special time of great tribulation. And that's what Jesus begins to describe and talk about in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, that occurs at the three and a half year mark, halfway through that seven years. Verses 4 through 14 describes what leads up to the last half of the tribulation period. And so verses 1 and 2, he's talked about what's going to happen with Jerusalem and the temple. That, that happens in A.D. 70. What he talks about afterward reaches far beyond A.D. 70. It reaches all the way to the end of the age, which we now know was at least 2,000 years away from this time of conversation with his disciples. So the question arises among those of us who believe that he's pointing to a time that's even in our future. The question arises, how much of verses 4 through 14 refer to what takes place in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period? Is Jesus looking in these verses to the first half of the tribulation period? Or is He talking about things that will take place from the time He's talking to His disciples all the way up to the last half of the tribulation period. That is to say, is He talking about some things that you and I will experience in our day, in this age we're living in right now, the church age? This is what the disciples could not conceive of, this gap of time between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, the church age. And we're going to dig into the specifics of that question a little bit more next week. But for tonight, what I wanted us to do Was to think about how these verses, verses 4 through 14, can be applied to the lives of believers throughout the church age. And the reason why I believe it is appropriate to do this is because there is nothing he talks about in verses 4 through 14 that you and I are not already experiencing, at least in some measure. There's nothing that Jesus mentions in verses 4-14 through that hasn't taken place and will not take place during the time we're living in right now. You say, well, what if He's talking about the first half of the tribulation period? Well, what that would involve would be an intensification, sort of a speeding up of these events, uh, putting them in a turbo mode so they're happening in rapid-fire fashion with increasing intensity. Even if he's describing the first half of the tribulation period, it would just mean an intensification of things we experience right now. Interesting, isn't it? In verse 8, he says, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. And as you know, when a baby is being delivered, there is an intensification of those labor pains and They come in a more rapid-fire fashion as the time gets nearer and nearer to the delivery of the baby. And so it will be, leading up to that second half of the tribulation period, things like this will intensify. We are living right now in the last days. Do you know that? That the last days began with the first advent of Jesus. We are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. We are living in the last days. The Bible makes clear, There are the last of the last days. We we may or may not be there, but we are certainly in the last days. And so with that in mind, I want us to think tonight about how to live in the last days. How do we live our lives to the glory of God in the last days? And tonight we're going to think about three things we must do to honor Jesus in the last days. How near are we to the return of our Savior for His people? We don't know. But we do know we're living in the last days. And the question is, how do we honor Him in these last days? Three things I want to share with you tonight from our verses. Verses 4 through 14. So more of a general view of these verses. will be more specific next week. First thing I want to mention is this. We must have biblical expectations. Are we going to honor Jesus in turbulent times, difficult times? If we are, then we must have our minds right. We must not be surprised by the things we're going to face in these last days. We must have biblical expectations. The question is, where are your expectations? Where are they being formed? How are they being formed? We talked this morning about times we'll say to ourselves, this isn't what I expected, or we'll say that out loud, well, where are your expectations being formed? Have they been formed in the realm of what you want? Have they been formed in the realm of your emotions? Have they been formed in the realm of the culture's expectations? Or are your expectations shaped and formed by the Bible, by the Word of God? And if we listen to Jesus here, and if we believe our Lord here, what would our expectations be? If you take Jesus here at His Word, then what can you and I expect in the last days? Let me mention five things. So this is point number one, but 5 subpoints. If you're taking notes. Five biblical expectations. We want to honor Jesus in the last days. We've got to have biblical expectations. Well, here are five expectations we find in these verses. First of all, we need to expect spiritual deception. Or we could say spiritual deceivers. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. It says in verse 4, see to it that no one deceives you. We can expect that until Jesus comes, we will live in a world full of antichrists. Servants of Satan. They can be male or female. They can stand behind a pulpit or sit in the pew. Or not go to church at all but the world will be full of people who represent the domain of darkness, who disseminate doctrines of demons, and who would take captive the spiritually gullible. Do you expect to live in a world full of spiritual, theological, doctrinal danger? Because that's the world we live in. As I said, there's nothing in these verses that we don't know for sure is already going on in the age and time in which we're living. From the very beginning of the church's life and history, God's people have been warned about antichrists. It was read earlier in our scripture reading, 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. As I said, we're living in the last days. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, So now many antichrists have come. There is a man of sin who is coming. He will be revealed in the tribulation period. But John is saying there are many antichrists on the scene at this moment. Therefore, he says, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Very interesting, isn't it, that many of these antichrists sort of spin out of the church. They were with us. They were among us. But they no longer walk with us. Why? It became evident they were never of us. False professors, empty professors, deceived and deceivers. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Anyone who denies the biblical Jesus, you see, the Jesus of the Bible, and all of the fullness that God has revealed Him in, in His Word. You deny the biblical Jesus, you are an antichrist. First John 4, 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So both His divine nature and His true human nature have to be acknowledged to have the biblical Jesus. You deny Jesus in terms of His real humanity, you're an antichrist. You deny Jesus in terms of His divine nature, you're an antichrist. This is how you know the Spirit of God as opposed to the spirit of the world, the activity of demons. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Then he says this, this is the spirit of of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Just one more example, 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Is this your expectation? You're going to be living in a world full of deceivers, full of deception, full of antichrists. Men, women, in pulpits and in office places that are animated by a different spirit. Not by the spirit of God, but by the domain of darkness. Do you recognize that? Is that your expectation? Second, biblical expectations. The second expectation, expect global disturbances. Expect global disturbances. Verse 6, and you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Jesus telling His disciples, get ready for this, the world will be full of all kinds of disturbances that don't reflect the end. That doesn't mean the end has come. I think this is very helpful because you and I live in a world that includes many evangelicals who seem to be doing newspaper eschatology. Every war that breaks out, every conflict that emerges, there's some guy on YouTube telling you it's the end. Well, I choose to believe our Savior, don't you? And he tells us that we need to know we're going to live in a world full of disturbing things. Expect global disturbances in the realm of politics. You can expect wars and rumors of war regionalized wars, civil wars, as history has proven since our Lord spoke these words, even global wars, world wars, that don't represent the end. It's just a part of the world we're going to live in until He returns. All kinds of conflict, all kinds of warring, upheaval, as people battle for political power and financial power, you can expect this not just in, in countries out there. You can expect it in your own land. You need to remember that America is not at the center of biblical prophecy. In fact, we're not mentioned at all. I don't know. We might be out of existence at the time that Jesus returns. So you're going to make an enormous mistake if you put the United States at the center of biblical prophecy. Do you expect this to live in a world full of global disturbance in the realm of politics? Well, you can also expect it in the realm of nature. He says, for nation, verse 7, will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. What does it mean when you have a very destructive hurricane? What does it mean when you have flooding? What does it mean when you have drought? What does it mean when you have wildfires breaking out all over the place? What does it mean when you have tsunamis and mudslides, earthquakes and famines? It means you're living in the world. You're going to live in until Jesus returns. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that the end has come. I think about this when I think about the whole global warming scam. You want to know what my view of that is? There you go. It's a a scam. But I think about this often because even if it were true, that you have this massive change in the temperatures of the planet, even if it threatened quote-unquote, the existence of the planet, though you can know this, the planet will be here until Jesus returns. But even if it supposedly threatened the existence of the planet, can I ask you, why would you think we did it? Given the fact that throughout the history of the planet, God has sent judgments in the form of famines, droughts, earthquakes, firestorms from heaven. It's His planet. And so even if these changes were occurring, I don't think man is responsible. I think the Almighty God who made it and sustains it is sending a message that humanity had better pay attention to. But even these disturbances in nature, Jesus says in verse 8, are merely the beginning of birth pains. It's not yet the end, Into verse 6. So living in the last days, you can expect spiritual deception. You can expect global disturbances, in, both in the political realm and in the realm of nature. Third, you can expect conflict from people in the public realm. Conflict with those who don't share our faith. Verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Let's just stop there for a moment. He's saying you're going to be persecuted. Some of you to the death. He says it's because of my name. Because of my name, into verse 9. Faith in Jesus leads believers into conflicts with a world that doesn't believe in Jesus. At virtually every point of our belief system, learning what we learn from the Word of God, at virtually every point of our belief system, we are now at odds with a world lost in its sin. Talk about marriage, we have a different view. Talk about raising children, we have a different view. Talk about sexuality, we have a different view. Name it. What is the subject you want to talk about? You and I have a different worldview because the Lord has rescued us out of the world out of the domain of darkness, and brought us into His kingdom and family. And now we walk in the light, and the world walks in its darkness. What does that result in? It results in persecution. It results in suffering. Will this intensify during the tribulation period? During the tribulation period, God is going to be saving both Jews and Gentiles. His attention, if I could say it this way, putting it in human terms, will have turned to Israel again in a special way. Right now during this church age, mostly Gentiles are being converted, but God is still saving Jewish people. During the tribulation period, God will still be saving Gentiles, but His attention will have turned back to Israel in a special way. And so there will be an intensification and a specification of this kind of persecution. But right now the Bible is clear that God's people suffer for our faith in Jesus. And it was going to involve the disciples of Jesus being hauled into Courtrooms and being tried and convicted and beaten and executed started from the very beginning. Jesus said in John 15 verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He's saying this from the very beginning of the history of the church. If they've kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. First John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Are you surprised? We're talking now about biblical expectations. Do we expect to live in a world full of deception? Do we expect to live in a world full of turbulence, disturbances, political disturbances, natural disturbances? Do we expect to suffer for our faith? Living in the last days, do we know this is a part of it? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Sometimes this persecution will be such in various places in the world that Christians are treated like enemies of the state. That's why Jesus said that believers can expect arrests, beatings, formal trials. Mark's account of this teaching includes that. Mark 13 verse 9, "...but be on your guard." for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them. I love that. Our Lord makes clear that why do My people suffer? To bear witness to My name. Every ounce of suffering is an opportunity to tell people about Christ. Are you ready for this? Are you mentally ready for this? Do you expect this? But He doesn't just talk about conflict Opposition, persecution in the public realm. He also talks about persecution in the personal realm. Verse 10, And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Now Matthew records what Christ said about betrayal in general terms. But Mark's account makes clear just how personal this can be. Mark 13, verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death. Over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. All persecution is painful. But we need to be prepared for persecution that can be as near to us as the most personal relationships of our lives. If you have Christian family members, thank God. But throughout the history of the church, there have been believers who have been disowned by their own families because of their faith in Jesus. Why hasn't that happened to you? Why why hasn't it happened to me? It's not because I deserve better. God has a sovereign plan He's working out in each of our lives. For some of us, we, in a, in a way not explained by us, but by the grace and mercy of God, we have had the joy of having believing families. But some believers He has chosen to bear witness to His name in a way that involves betrayal from their own brother, betrayal from their own parents, betrayal from their own children, brother against brother, parents and children against each other. And again, this has existed throughout the church age. This is not just during the tribulation period. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Christ says the gospel is like a sword. It divides even in some cases down to the level of your family relationships. Which challenges us at the point of whether or not we have saving love, whether or not we've been regenerated so that we love God no matter what. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 12, 51, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Maybe someone listening to me tonight, you know that kind of pain. The pain of not being able to walk in unity with the people in your own household when it comes to your love for Christ. Well, should that have escaped our expectations? When Jesus told us in advance it was going to be this way. A fifth expectation, expect compromise in the realm of of professing believers. Expect compromise in the realm of professing believers. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. We've already seen in 1 John. Some of those come out of the church. But verse 12 says this, and because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. There will be times in the last days when the atmosphere of the culture is so lawless that you're going to witness multiplied defections from the profession of faith that people have in Jesus? We should not be shocked by suffering, but are we shocked by defections? Are we shocked when people who have walked with us and talked with us and supposedly worshipped with us and studied with us, Depart from the Lord's church and walk away from the faith. Should we be shocked by it? When our Lord has told us from the beginning, this is something we're going to face as we walk with Him in these last days. So how do you live a life that honors Jesus in the last days? You have biblically formed expectations. You expect to meet with deception. You expect global disturbances, political and natural. You expect conflict from people due to your faith in Jesus in the public realm. You expect conflict from people due to your faith in Jesus in the private realm, in the personal realm. You expect that some are going to prove unfaithful and walk away from Christ altogether and walk away from us, walk away from from the church. Do we have expectations formed by Scripture. Second thing we must do. If we're going to live for Christ in these days in a way that's faithful. We, we also, second, need biblical preparation. Make biblical preparations. Have biblical expectations. Therefore, make biblical preparations. How do you make biblical preparations? Do you go out and buy a bunch of food? Stored in your basement? I could mention some other things, but I won't. That people do in the name of preparing for the last days. Do you find anything like that in this Olivet Discourse when it comes to the time leading up to the Great Tribulation? No, you do not. But if we're hearing Jesus rightly, then we have an idea, don't we, about how to prepare. Given these expectations, how do we prepare? Well, we prepare by knowing the truth. We prepare by knowing the truth. This is what Jesus calls upon us to do in verse 4. This is a command. See to it, look to it, that no one deceives you. That's a call to action. That's a call to preparation. All of you, plural, be on guard. Watch, Watch, look, see, that no one leads you astray. That is, we're being called to prepare by being alert in the realm of the truth. Knowing that deceivers are out there, knowing that deception is all around, well then you see to it that you're alert in the realm of truth. Christ is giving you the information to do that in verse 5. He's alerting you to the fact that there are deceivers. Know the truth about those deceivers then. Be able to recognize false teachers. So say, how do I recognize them? You measure them against the standard of Scripture. And as we've seen in 1 John, you measure them against the doctrine of Christ Himself. Do they have the right God? Do they have the right Savior? Never listen to people who present to you another Jesus than the one you find in the apostolic witness of the Word of God. This was Paul's rebuke for the Corinthian church. They were all too willing to listen to people who held to a different Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. Who is Jesus? Both in terms of His person, and in terms of the Spirit represented in how He is presented, and when you think about what He came to do, that's the gospel. What did He come to do? What did He come to accomplish? Paul is saying, you are meeting with people who are off in all three areas. And you put up with it, he says in verse 4, you put up with it readily enough. You tolerate it. So you need to know the truth about deceivers and not tolerate deceivers. By the way, you don't do this like a lone ranger. This is why the Lord has given His church. The church is the pillar in support of the truth. One of the ways you are mindful of false teachers you belong to a church that doesn't tolerate them. And you learn the truth in the context of that fellowship, and you live out the truth in the context of that fellowship, and you exhort each other in the truth in the context of that fellowship. There's a healthy ecclesiology that belongs to people who have healthy doctrine. In fact, find someone who doesn't have a biblical appreciation for the church, and you'll find someone who eventually is far too open to another Jesus. Know the truth about the difficulties Jesus talks about in verses 6 through 12. How do I prepare? I need to know the truth about all these difficulties he's just described. The disturbances in the realm of politics, the disturbances in the realm of nature. I need to know about the fact that we're going to suffer for our faith, both in the public realm and in the personal realm. So that when these things happen, I'm not moved by false teachers who will take advantage of all of those sorts of events. To lead people astray. If I just know this is normal Christianity until Jesus comes, there's a stabilization that occurs in that knowledge. God means for us to be strengthened and stabilized by what we know to expect. Again, this is something that's belonged to the entire church age. 1 Thessalonians 3 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer. We we're willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. We know you're suffering. We know there are difficulties taking place, but we didn't want you to be moved by these things, so we sent Timothy to exhort you in your faith, to establish you. That no one be moved by these afflictions for, because you yourselves know that we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. The apostles prepare the church not to be taken advantage of through the afflictions of this age. They told the people of God in advance, it's coming. So when it comes, treat it as normal fare. This is what belongs to this time we're living in until Jesus comes again. It shouldn't surprise you. This is how you prepare by knowing the truth and then having a life, mindset, a worldview that's shaped by that knowledge. First Peter 4:1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Thinking can be arming oneself. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. How will you know that you're actually preparing yourself with what Jesus and the Word of God has revealed? How do you know you're preparing yourself to live a Christ-honoring life in these last days? Well, one of the ways you know is you're not aiming at the passing pleasures of this age. You're aiming to live for God during this temporary age. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is in these bodies, until the resurrection, until we meet with our Savior, so as to live right now, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Is that how you're living? Can I tell you, perhaps the greatest enemy... You and I face in the 21st century, as Americans especially, is affluence, ease, comfort, fun, pleasure, acceptance, human praise. Go talk to believers living in some parts of this world where faith in Christ means you die who cherish the Word of God to the extent that they hold on to a page of the Bible. Go tell them you're missing this Sunday for a baseball game. And then tell me that the affluence of our time, the ease of our time is not a danger to our souls. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. I'm not arguing or some sort of spiritual self-inflicted pain. I'm not arguing to live joyless lives in a cave somewhere, refusing ourselves any and every joy in life. I'm not saying that at all. I think we've made that clear over the years from the Word of God. What I am saying to you is, beware idols, little children. Flee from them. Recognize them. Mortify them. So we prepare with this information. We prepare by knowing the truth the truth about deceivers, the truth about difficulties. We also prepare by resting in the truth. It's not enough to know these truths. Will we rest in these truths? Put it another way can you know all of this and trust the Lord with it? Can you know that your world will be a very unsettling place? Can you know that you're going to live in a world that's a very unaccepting place? Can you know you're going to live in a world that's a very trouble-filled place, some of that trouble aimed at you as a believer? Can you know all of this and still trust God with your life, with your wife, with your children, with your future, with your sustenance? Can you live joyfully? That's resting in the Lord even in the light of what He's prepared you for. Can you live your life without fear? Talk about the spirit of what you're hearing in the name of Jesus. Just take note of messages in the name of Jesus in light of the end times that would fill the people of God with trepidation instead of trust. Mark's account tells us Twice that our Lord told His disciples, I mean, as He's giving this information, He tells them not to be afraid. tells them not to be anxious. Mark 13, verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Why would He add that? Because what's our tendency? To be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pain. Don't be alarmed by the global disturbances. But he also says don't be alarmed by the intimidating trials. Verse 9 of Mark 13, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to counsel. So you're not living naively. You're alert. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit, the Lord goes with His people into their sufferings. We are not alone. He enables us to endure what we are called to endure. He enables us to give the witness that we need to give. Sometimes people will torture themselves with this thought, well, will I be able to pass the test? I mean, if they put my children in front of me and said, deny Jesus or I'm going to execute your... would I be able to pass the test? Dear ones, you are wasting your time with those sorts of thoughts. Live for Christ right now in the circumstances you've been assigned. And just know that whatever your sovereign God leads you into, He goes with you to strengthen you and sustain you. He will not let you go. So, how do you live well in the last days? You have biblical expectations, therefore, you're making biblical preparations by knowing the truth and by resting in the truth so that we're not upset and moved by these afflictions, but we're stable and while we're alert, we're not alarmed. The difference. Alert, but not alarmed. Third thing, final thing. How do we honor Jesus in the last days? We take biblical action. It's one thing to expect these things. It's one thing to mentally theologically, doctrinally, prepare for these things. But then sooner or later we meet with them. And when we meet with these things, then the course of faithfulness is a course of obedience. Now I must take action. When I meet with the false teachers, I must stand firm in the truth. I mean, if the whole world around us seeks to explain away the error and explain away the compromise and explain away the denial of truth. And though they put a face on it that makes it seem so sophisticated and respectable, we must stand our ground right there. We must obey the Lord. We must trust our God when it seems like the world is falling apart all around us. We take action by trusting Him, not by living fearful lives, but, but by living joyful and trusting lives. We must remain faithful to our God when we're persecuted publicly or privately. How often do we try to find a respectable way to relieve the suffering instead of an obedient way that endures the suffering? You know, I can compromise just a little and it will take away this uncomfortable situation. Versus, no, Lord, I must be faithful to You. Regardless of the cost, I must be faithful to You. We take action by seeing ourselves as missionaries on foreign soil. This is not our home. So that we're not living for human passions, as Peter says, but for the will of God. So so I take action by saying, today, Lord, is Your day, and today I live for Your will. Why not take that temptation? Because I love You, God. I love Jesus. Why not give myself over to the passing pleasures of sin, to things that I might enjoy in the moment but would destroy me over time? Why not give into that? Because I love the Lord Jesus Christ who died for that very thing that now invites me to find pleasure in it instead of pleasure in Him. These are the choices we make when we're taking biblical action, you see. Now it's not just expectation. Now it's not just preparation. Now I've met with it. And what am I going to do when I meet with it? I must obey what I know to be true from the Word of God. So the application not as is simple, isn't it? Are you honoring Jesus in these last days? Are you honoring our God in these last days? Are you living a faithful life Are you expecting what Jesus said to expect? Are you preparing in the way that Jesus said to prepare? Are you passing the tests as they come to you one by one? Passing the tests by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, by obedience to the Word of God. And when you fail and you will, do you repent and confess your sin and get up and walk on. Are you embracing what the church has always had to endure? And will you embrace the truth even in the times when the tests intensify? When they're coming in rapid fire fashion, like the baby is soon to be born? Will you prove faithful then? I think it's true what Aaron said earlier in his prayer as he was leading us in scripture reading at least in our country, and I think it's true to say globally, given the fact we're more globally connected than ever before. And at least in my lifetime, which is just 60 years in span, but I can say, from my vantage point, we have never faced a more unified, globally coordinated, and men don't coordinate it, test of our faith in Jesus. Is it the last of the last days? I don't know, but it's the last days. We're living in the last days. They began when Jesus came the first time. and So my question is, will we pass these tests? If so, we must have biblical expectations. We must make biblical preparation. And then with every test we meet, we must take biblical action. Lord, strengthen us to finish our journey well to hear, well done, not to live our lives in anxiety and fear, not to be alarmed, but to trust You one day at a time, one step at a time, until we see Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank You for Your Holy Word. Strengthen us, Lord, in keeping with what we've just said. That you would be glorified in our lives individually, and You'd be glorified in this church. In these last days, in this last hour, when there are many antichrists and many disturbances, many tests, strengthen us, Lord, to believe you and to rest in you and to obey you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.